they would call us for input and advice way more often than we were calling them to say, hey, did you guys think about this? Or we really probably need to do that. Yeah. That's great. Because then what you have is you have a real partnership, a real partner relationship. Nobody's afraid to make a mistake. Nobody's afraid to to come up with a bad idea that the other person says no to. And again, it leads to it leads to a better outcome. The worst thing is, is when you have, for us as an investor, when you have teams who think they, they have to do it all themselves. Right. And so they don't share information as readily as they should. And I think it has to do with style of management and thinking that way is it leads to a bad relationship because if you're not asking for advice or sharing information as readily as you should, it means as an investor, you're generally going to get bad information later than you should, right? which then you lose confidence, you lose trust, and, and the relationship goes the other way. Are you ready to unleash the potential of your business by growing an unbeatable global workforce? Our sponsor, Relay Human Cloud, helps you maximize this advantage by simplifying staff hosting and services overseas. So there is no need to worry about risk or any process-related issues. At the end of this episode, I'll share a little bit more about how Fort Capital has worked with Relay Human Cloud and reveal a special offer crafted for the loyal listeners of the Fort Podcast. Stay tuned for more. One of the great joys of my life has been building Fort Capital, something that I have loved for a long time. One of the best parts about it is building it with our incredibly talented team across three offices, Fort Worth, Dallas, and Houston, and our team abroad. We've built an incredible enterprise focused around a mission of being the best real estate operator in the world. We really believe the better that we get at operating, the better that we get in investing. We've built some incredible technology that gives us the ability to see data that others can't and operate our company as efficiently as possible and deliver better customer service to our tenants and really everybody involved. If you want to know more about our thesis, I encourage you to go to our website, fortcapitallp.com, where we talk about why we've been investing in Class B industrial real estate since 2016, hyper-focused on it. You can learn how you can help us find deals more about our technology and, and how we think about it. You can see job openings. Highly encourage you to check out our newsletter or follow us on LinkedIn. And you can do all of this by going to fortcapitallp.com. Let's just start with kind of your story into oil and gas private equity. You got into it at a time when it was kind of just beginning in the form we know it today. And so take it, take it wherever you'd like to start. But how did you get here? Yeah. I mean, I, I really lucked into it, to be honest. It wasn't something that I set out to do. I was a, I was a business major in college and grew up in the, in the Dallas area, business major in college, and went into investment banking post-college because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to get the four years of work experience in two years on Wall Street and, and really learn that way. And it was yeah. a great experience. I did that. And then before going back to business school, I wanted to to transition to the investing side. And that's what I, I think I realized pretty early in my life that, that that's where my passion was. Yep. I was lucky and was lucky enough to, to get a job in, in the rainwater office at a time when Natural Gas Partners had just started. It started a few years before I got there and Richard was still reasonably active doing deals. And I wanted a one to two year stint before going back to business school. And so I went over and in that, 
you know, in that year and a half I was there prior to business school, it was when, you know, NGP were, at the time we were, a, basically fund one was a hundred million dollar fund and it was mostly monetized. Yeah. Um, some work to do there and then fund two and three were brand new, but they were 30 and $38 million funds. They were tiny funds. I mean, they're not even, they wouldn't even call funds by <laughs> today's standards in our business in the private equity world in general. <laughs> And we did a lot with Richard. We would overlap. There were interesting things that happened back then because you just had to be nimble, and it was a different it was a different business. But in that year was the de- was the year where where we struck the deal with Mesa to do the big convertible preferred and restructuring. And obviously, that deal was a two hundred sixty five million dollar commitment of which we were going to do at least fifty one percent of, so one hundred thirty three okay. million. Obviously, managing a thirty and thirty eight million dollar fund, we didn't have the money for that. Yeah, and so it was really it was a with Rainwater Inc., with Richard-led deal. That, doing some things for NGP, being kind of half-time there, half-time Rainwater. Yep. And then the Mesa deal, which took, you know, between Richard and Ken Hirsch and Bruce Selkirk and Randy Chapel, it was all of our lives for the better part of six, seven, eight months. Okay, go a little bit deeper. So what was the Mesa deal? How did this thing work? So the Mesa was T. Boone Pickens' company. Okay. And T. Boone had basically leveraged the company and you know, put the punk company in a bad spot. And it had been for a while. And like a lot of people in, in Texas and in the Dallas area, if they had companies that were in trouble, a lot of people called Richard okay. because he was smart, had money, could put deals together. And, and he had had a reputation of saving businesses and coming in to provide critical equity capital at a time when companies needed it. And of Boone's company being an oil and gas company, Richard would look over and say, NGP guys, I, you know, I started you, you're in, in, in my office, you, you guys have to lead this. And so, and so we did, so we made offers to Mesa, to, to their board, they were a public company at the time. And I think our first offer with the stock was six, seven, eight, I don't remember exactly. And we offered up a convertible preferred at two. And of course <laughs> they turned it down. They, that's not the best pass. So they went out to try to sell some assets in the middle of the asset sale. I think they came back. The stock was at four. We said, no, it's still convertible, preferred to two. And then when it re- they realized the asset sales were going to fail or generate insufficient value to cover the debt they needed to, they needed to come up with, they called and the stock was approaching two. And we said, we'll still do the convertible bird at two. And that was, a lot of that was a, you know, Richard, Boone relationship where I wouldn't say they were close. They, they knew each other, but by reputation as well. And we at NGP knew the assets and knew what the right value was and where this could be a good transaction. And so that was really, you know, that six to nine month period on that transaction was where I really cut my teeth on the oil and gas business, which that business actually went on You know, in doing that deal. We closed that it was a convertible preferred where there was, we refinanced $800 million of public debt on the company with a $265 million equity injection in the form of a convertible preferred. We brought in John Brumley Sr. to run the company and we shook up the board and changed up the board. So it was a, now a completely different look. And then within a year, year and a half of closing that deal, Mesa merged with Parker and Parsley to become what is now or soon to be gone pioneer. So, you know, we always say, and it's true. We like to build, we do this today. We like to build great companies and companies that have real staying power. And it starts with, you know, incredible management teams, which John Brumley was one. And then Scott Sheffield came in post-merger 
because of both phenomenal CEOs and then with great assets. And that, you know, kind of leads leads you down a path of creating something something special and that's long lasting and that generates real equity rates of return. Okay. And you might've just given the answer, but if you look at that experience and go going through that six to nine months, these lessons I learned, you said, this is where I really cut my teeth. Like what else about that period kind of set you up? Well, it's, it was a mix of things, right? Patience, right? There are a lot of people who have capital and stretch for deals and they just want to get deals done. Where if you were a big buyout fund nowadays, you're looking at a deal like that. It might have been easy to stretch to four, four fifty five dollars just to try to get a deal done. Where we were, no, we knew what the value was, and we were patient, yep. and we we were willing to let a deal go away, which yep. we always are. We are today at Pearl. If if it's not the right deal at the right price, there'll be another one around the corner. So that big picture, that was, you know, that was that was obviously critical and deals take time, right? Yep. Deals don't just happen overnight. A lot of times you have to work deals over a long period of time. Yep. Um, and that hasn't changed, right? That deal was 96. So it was, it was a long time ago yeah. and deals are very much the same, same nowadays. And then the oil and gas business. I mean, right. For me, I was an investment guy, an investment banker trained in finance, but not in oil and gas. So there was a lot I had to come up to speed on there that, that was a learning experience. You know, the first thing, not trusting reserve reports. So a lot of, you know, every public company has a reserve report, but you know, we, we like to always say that they're generally, they're not worth the paper they're printed on. Okay. And it really, really depends on who's the engineer that actually does it and what's their look and how much do they actually understand the assets that they're, they're writing that on. And you, we saw that firsthand in, you know, in the Mesa deal as we got in there and tried to understand the assets even better and, you know, what made sense and what didn't. Okay. Explain that a little further. It's like, cause it's kind of like when you're getting a house inspected, if you're the seller, the inspection looks one way. If you're the buyer, the inspection looks a whole nother way. I'm assuming in your business, if you own the oil, your reserves are huge and there's a ton. And if you're buying, it can look like, yeah, we don't think you have as much. How do you find equilibrium there? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's always a great question. And sometimes it works the other way, right? You know, you know, your assets really well. Correct. So when you're selling your house, you know, which toilets don't flush right. <laughs> and so you know kind of where all the the skeletons are are buried. Yeah. The buyer doesn't. So they're trying to come in and, and unravel that. I'd, I'd argue it's the same thing in the oil and gas business. But when a company knows that, they don't necessarily have to show all of that data right. to a third party who puts the reserve report together. And so they come in much like a, a buyer with incomplete information, though they try to do a great job to get as complete information as possible. They don't always do it because yeah. they don't own it. They don't live with it every day. Yeah. And so they put together a report that has a stamp on it from an independent third party. But like I said, that doesn't mean they know the asset. They clearly don't know the asset as well as the seller. Right. So that report can look very different and a buyer coming in sees that and says, okay, I've got to do my own homework. But again, even a buyer and a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times a buyer's, most of the time a buyer's not going to understand the assets as well as the seller. Right. Right. It's just, you own something, whether it's your car or your house or an oil and gas field, when you own it, you deal with it every day. You understand it better than somebody who's just showing up for the first time to look at it. For sure. Okay. So if if you say the, the reserve reports aren't worth the paper they're written on. How do you overcome that as a buyer? 
Well, yeah, you, you make sure, like for us, as we invest, we make sure we're in business with with great management teams that have the technical talent where they've worked in those areas and Got they it. know those fields. Got it. Um, like we always say, recipe for disaster. If you're, you know, we've, I've invested in Canada for yeah. a long time in the oil and gas business up there and had great success up there. But if you said to me, hey, I've got this great team, they're based out of Austin, Texas, but they're going to look at deals in Alberta, I'd shake my head and say, I, there's next to zero chance we will do that deal. Okay. It's like, well, why not? Well, I don't care how good they are. The probability of them understanding the assets in Alberta based down here, not working that basin relative to those who, who are all within a 10 block radius in Calgary who have, who have worked on in these fields for their entire career, they're never going to understand them to that extent. So what we do to mitigate the risk, we make sure that our management teams have history, experience, knowledge, technical skill in the areas that they're looking. And that's where we we find where we have, we do have some competitive advantages, right? If you have a team that is, is operating a field next to something that's up for sale, you have a competitive advantage. You know what it costs you to run this field. And if you're buying this field from Exxon, their cost structure is going to be higher. It's yeah. not because they're not smart. It's just because they have a different bureaucracy. They have a different process. And as a buyer next door, being a quick, nimble company, you may be able to come in and cut costs pretty quickly. Yeah. So, But you have to have that level of understanding. And and is there an easy way to prove that you have that? Is it literally just, hey, look at my resume. This is where I've worked. And these are the jobs I've held that you... On your end, if you're determining, am I going to give you money or not? You can be like, yep, they have yeah. it. Well, I think, there, I think there's two levels to that, right? Okay. If, if you're an LP looking to invest in our fund, yep. you know, the first thing you're going to look at is, is track record. What have you done? Have you been able to generate returns? And when, if the answer is yes, check that box. That's the first step. That's yep. the pass. The next step is, well, how do you do it? And is it repeatable? Yeah. And so for, for us, you know, those are the, the keys to what you're, you're getting at because our business is backing great management teams. Yep. So how do you find management teams and how do you assess them? And, you know, that's, that's the softer science of what we do. But you, for us, I've been doing it a long time. I mean, I'm doing it 30 years now. Yeah. Uh, met with lots and lots of management teams. Can usually sniff out, okay, this makes sense. These dots connect. This team seems like a great team. We're going to have an interest in backing in. They have a capitalistic mindset in addition to being technical by nature. Yep. They think like business owners and then reference checking. And so you connect the dots for us and it's, do we have good deal flow? Do management teams want to do business with us? Yes. And can we assess that talent? Yep. And that answer is most of the time, yes. It's not always. We make mistakes. Sometimes we back teams and it doesn't turn out to be what we thought for you know, it could be one of one or two of a number of reasons, yeah. but it doesn't always work. You know, we do make mistakes. What are the reasons why it usually doesn't work out that the the geology isn't what it, you thought it was? No. I, so with a management team, it could be capture, right? So a lot of times we'll, we'll back teams most of the time. In fact, we'll back teams that don't have assets, but have history experience in an area and they don't, but they don't have assets. Well, yep. it's a skill to go out and actually find assets to buy where you have special knowledge, where you can you can acquire them and make money with them. Yep. So, capture is is not always easy. It's a competitive business, even you know even with where the world sits today in the oil and gas business, where I, it's much less competitive today than it was ten years ago. Yep. It's still competitive. It's never easy making money. So, 
you know, so that you know the the first thing is is that the management team right we we make sure that we think they can they can capture once you capture you still have to execute yeah and so that could be where where we miss it right where we we back a team and we think you know everything we see all the reference checking we do we think they can execute a certain way or they're going to look to make business decisions a certain way and it doesn't turn out that way and yep. whether they they underestimate drilling costs they they overestimate reserves in the ground underestimate how quickly wells decline i mean there are a whole laundry list of of things that can go wrong in our business yeah. i mean it's it's a tricky business and there are a lot of things that can go wrong yeah on captures i think that's fascinating okay so i come in hey i've been in this area forever i know it like the back of my hand but i've never run my own company and I think a lot of people, no matter what industry, and you have the confidence of the big company you worked for, it was easy to get deals done in that region. But once you're off on your own with a new company name and nobody knows who you are, that goes off. I don't know if it's a loaded question. It's like, if somebody's own, maybe only worked for a big company, even though they know the area the best, how can you kind of vet out, like, do they're, are they going to have the capture potential or not? So that, that's, a, that's a great question. If they've only worked for a big company, that would be a red a, flag. A, yeah, at least a a bright yellow flag. Okay, because that means by definition they generally haven't been responsible for for having to capture something. They may be a great petroleum engineer, maybe a great geologist, maybe a great technical landman, but the nuance of going out and finding deals they haven't done. So in that particular case, let's say it's a petroleum engineer. Well, who's that? You know, who's that person's partner? Right, because that's one thing we also, when we look to to back teams, we we generally, well, I don't say we generally, we never back one man shows. Right, that's just not what we do. We want to see a good balanced team, at least two strong balanced leaders at the top. Yep, basically to play off of each other, different skill sets, and and top of mind is like the two biggest things we look for are strong technical skills and complimentary person who has real deal savvy and and can lower the risk on failure of capture. Okay. So you you need co-founders. You need co-founders. How often do you have somebody come to you that's great and you're like, I can help you find a co-founder or go find a co-founder and come back to me? The, the latter all the time. Okay. All the time. We'll meet somebody, we'll say, you have the pedigree, all the things we look for in somebody we would back. Yeah. Who are you doing it with? Yeah. That happens all the time. We just backed a team just like that. Incredible team. And they were coming to us early and just kicking ideas around. So they weren't out looking alone yep. and asking for advice. What do you think? What should I look for? And so we give people coaching all the time like that. I mean, that's part of our job is mentoring, coaching people who aren't ready yet, but might be one day. And so that, that team, they went out. People had known each other a while. Decided, okay, let's partner up, and, yeah. and now they're they're two people with great complementary skill sets, and you know we're excited to go. It's starting from scratch. <laughs> it's starting from scratch. We did it with one one of your friends. Let's talk about it. <laughs> so that they come. Well, well, let's just kind of go for there for a second. We're already there. Okay. Okay. So they come in. Will and James. Will and James. We're now Permian Resources. Correct. What's like the story from your perspective? I mean, it's an incredible story. And how these can play out in the best of outcomes. Yeah. So I, I think the like this is a great starting point. It's a great it's a great example. It's an easy example, right? Because it's been so successful. But uh, but it is a great su- example of different points along the the process of what we look for. So I had known Will for a few years. He had been put in touch with me by 
a friend of his, a fraternity brother of his, as he was looking to leave Pioneer and go to NCAP. And his friend said, you have to talk to Billy. He can give you good advice on that. And this was just after I left NGP. So this was or late 2013, early 2014. And so I met Will that way. And it was more in a mentor role. And, and, and I encouraged him. I said, you should take the NCAP job. They're great firm, great people. You're going to learn a lot, different skill set, and you're ready. You're ready for that. <laughs> so I, I had gotten to know Will, and then we stayed in touch over the course of a year and a half, two years. And you just started developing a relationship. And he calls one day. Uh, I'm in my office and I put him on the speaker and are you alone? And you had started Pearl at this point. Started Pearl. Okay. We had, this was, we had just closed or we just closed or right on the cusp of closing our first fund. Okay. So it was called September, October of 2015 and Will calls and one of the partners in, in my office at Pearl is Stuart Coleman and Stuart and Will were pledge brothers together. And so when Will called on the speaker, Stuart was out. I said, yeah, come in, come on in here. And Will's talking, he said, who's in the room with you? And I said, it's just Stuart, just me and Stuart. And he says, okay, I want to come talk to you guys because I think I have a crazy idea. Okay, what is it? He said, well, James called me. So James grew up with Will on the same street. They were all in the same fraternity. So between Stuart and Will and James, they'd all known each other for, for 10 plus years, for a long time, Will and James, their entire lives. Yeah. So you have that level of comfort when you know people, you know how they think, are they, are they smart? Do they think, you know, do they think three, four steps ahead? You know, how do they think about making money? You get comfort in, you know, in that history. And so we'll, we said, well, yeah, let's do it. And he said, okay, I'm going to get James. We're going to, we're, let's meet with you guys. And so we go to the Ritz bar right across the street from our office in Dallas. And we basically sketch out on, you know, on a napkin what a term sheet looks like. And, and, and it starts with, we, we talk about their, we know their backgrounds. We, we, I didn't know James at the time, so we spent more time talking about James and his background. And you could tell just the passion and the ambition and all the things they wanted to do. And they were 27, 28 at the time, yeah. but lots of ambition, lots of talent. And given a number of things that they had done in their careers, combined with their complementary skill sets, et cetera, et cetera. That's something we look at and say, that's, that's a bet worth taking. Yeah. And now to be clear, and Will Hickey will tell you this all the time, well, you weren't taking that much risk because you have to approve every deal we do. You, yeah. We can't call a dollar of capital from you without your approval. True. Yeah. So there's always that check in place. So it's not like us writing a, bl a blank check yeah. and they just go spend it. We always have that control over the dollars, but we saw enough in them that we said, this is, a, this is a, a good bet to take. Yep. Um, and so we basically sketch out a turn sheet on a napkin, said, we'll get you a real formal one, you know, <laughs> tomorrow. And we did. And, and so it was, that's how it started. If you said, what are the things you look for? I mean, there are lots. They both had great reputations. You check references on any of them and they're super smart, hungry, ambitious. You know, little thing, like just wanting to move to Midland from, from Houston and Dallas, you know, that shows a level of ambition and what you're willing to do to make a business work. Cause it's easy to say, oh, I like Dallas Midland. It's not Dallas. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not moving out there. And when you have to convince your wives to move out yeah. there. <laughs> so you just saw a number of things like that. Will's history, like pe people think, uh, people can interpret it one of two ways, his poker history, which yeah. he made money playing poker and yeah. he was smart and calculated in how he did it. And like to us, that's a, that's, 
that's an entrepreneurial sign. Yep. You know, he didn't just go get a job in the summer. He he figured out ways to make money on his own. And so that skill set is really, really hard to find. Yep. It's really hard to find. So the, the combination of those things led us to say, okay, that's a that's a great bet. Let, backing them with a $75 million commitment and then let's go. Oh, man. Do, real quick, do you think in this industry, you said moving to Midland, like maybe it's it's on this one investment or just in general, like how big of a factor is it that they're close to the asset that they're operating? Yeah, I mean, it matters. Yeah. Um, to a certain extent, it matters. I, I would say when they were starting out doing what they're doing from a deal flow perspective yeah. and, and asset level, it matters. They have now real contacts, people on the ground, et cetera. So if Will and James were in Fort Worth or Dallas, it wouldn't be as big a deal today for them as as it would have been back going back. back seven, eight years ago. Okay, so you get the 75 million term sheet, back, back of a napkin. How, how long from like back of a napkin to like we're in business? Is this months, weeks, eight years? Week, eight weeks. Eight okay. Weeks. So by mid-December, everything's signed and done. Okay. You guys get off. How do you know? And, and you can tie it back to this company, but you've done, you've been involved with Energy Transfer, Permian Resources, Pioneer, a lot of these big companies. Like, how do you kind of get some idea, okay, these are going to be big companies? Well, you don't know. Okay. I mean, the, the, the honest answer is you have no idea. Okay. Right. You have to, there are a number of things you have to look at and, and assess as a company and your investment moves along as to what, what is the right decision. So, Mesa Pioneer, that started out as a large company and a public company. So that was there anyway. Yeah. Energy transfer started out with an acquisition tied up. And so it what didn't necessarily have to get public, yeah. but the way the world moved back then and the MLP world shifted so quickly and where that investment was, it was the natural, it was a natural fit. Whereas PR was a little different. I mean, we were a private company for, you know, for basically seven years, what we're eight years in now. For basically seven years, and just in the last fifteen months, we've become a public company. Yeah, and I think the 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 when do you know it's going to get big? I so I would say that like the the starting point is as you progress, you're looking for signs both in what type of assets an asset base are you building, and what are the team's capabilities? Because I mean, to the, be fair, like in the Delaware, there's tons of private equity backed teams chasing the Delaware, yeah. but only one became. It, and and that was like I, look all that stuff I look and say there's a combination of of skill and luck that goes into that and so if the the funny part is when we sketched out their term sheet on a napkin the other napkin was well what's the business plan and you look back and you laugh it's like well oil prices are thirty dollars and falling we're just going to go buy long lived assets conventional assets from Exxon and Chevron that <laughs> that was basically their business plan I yeah. mean it was we joke about it today it wasn't totally their business plan yeah but unconventional in the Delaware Basin was not their business plan. But what they did, and this is also a telltale sign of can you get big, is, and you know, we see both sides of the coin. And, and I look at this and say, you know, even in our business, what are the most important things you can do and what are signs of great leaders? Great leaders hire great people. And they, they're not worried. They don't, they don't feel threatened by having people smarter than them around them. I know in my office, there are three. There are at least three other people who are a lot smarter than me, <laughs> and that's the way. That's the way it should be. And with Will and James, they're 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 brilliant individuals. But when they go out and hire people, 
they hire incredibly intelligent people who are outstanding at what they did. Yep. And their first thing when they decided, hey, we need we need somebody to help us on the capture side, they went out and hired a top-notch, well-known landman, Brandon Gaynor, from Concho. And when they did that, like for me, that was, even though it was really early on, it was in, I think it was first quarter of, of 2016, it was... One of many inflection points of their hiring, they want to, they know already at their age, they know you want to hire the best person. You want to get great people in because having multiple great people working together is going to create the best outcome. And this isn't just about them. It's about the investment and how everything goes. So that was, if you said what, what made us think or believe we could be big there's never one thing, yeah. but a starting point is, okay, are, are they secure enough in their own shoes and the humility and and the intellectual honesty to be able to say, no, we need great people. I don't care if that person's smarter than me and we're going to pay them. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to pay up for great people. And so that was, I would say that was the first of many and every, every hiring decision over there, not since they've gotten large, I mean, cause I'm not close to it. So I really can't comment on it, but in the critical days and the early days of Colgate, all the hires over there were phenomenal hires. And what's your role in the business once the money's in? Like, how does that evolve over time? Where are you, how do you know you're doing a good job as a partner? Yeah, I, I like. I think the first thing is is it's we're trying to strike a balance because we control the board, we technically control the company. Our balance is okay. We want to let them run this business. It's their business. Let them run it and, you know, give them the rope to go be themselves. At the same time, you want to have enough check and understand, okay, are all the right things being done? Because we have the luxury where as an investor in multiple companies, our data set is much larger. Whereas when you're running one company, you have your data set, maybe some peers you share information with. For us, it's it's up top at the parent level. We see we say parent level is the wrong word, but it's up top at the investment fund level where we're seeing multiple companies, who's doing what well, who's not doing things well, what are mistakes that people make. Yep. And so we can we can share that with with the teams. Yep. So you know, our job is is to balance when we, you know, when we say, eh, we think you should do this, but we're not sure, or no, you need to do this. Yep. So it's always a it's always a a gentle balance. And it's best when both work together. So, and that's the other thing I would say with, when it comes to Will and James working with us is they would call us for input and advice way more often than we were calling them to say, Hey, did you guys think about this? Or we really probably need to do that. That's great. Because then what you have is you have a real partnership, a real partner relationship and nobody's afraid to make a mistake. Nobody's afraid to, to come up with a bad idea that the other person says no to. And again, it leads to it leads to a better outcome. The worst thing is is when you have for us as an investor, when you have teams who think they they have to do it all themselves, right? And so they don't share information as readily as they should. And what that what typically happens in those is, and it, and it's just, I think it has to do with style of management and thinking that way. Is it and it leads to a bad relationship because if you're not asking for advice or sharing information as readily as you should. It means as an investor, you're generally going to get bad information later than you should, right? which then you lose confidence, you lose trust, and 
and the relationship goes the other way. So it's not uncommon for man for management teams to be calling up by the week. No, it's da- not like they're calling daily, daily, daily. If you, I mean, if you talk to Will and James, Stu Stover at Slant, our team at Infinity, they're on the phone with our office daily. I mean, in, in busy times when they're when they're incredibly active. Our companies may be on the phone with one person in our office multiple times a day. And what are the types of questions they're asking you? Like, what 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 are they coming to you for? There are boots on the ground. You've got money. You've clearly got experience in these basins. But what is like? What would they need to be calling for daily? It could be anything from we're looking at these acquisitions and what do you think about these? And here's what we're seeing. And got it. And what do you? And they want strategy advice. It could be, we're looking to hire some people to do this. Do you think we should? Do you think we shouldn't? This is what we're feeling the, the need is. And so it, it's, it's, it's a handful of anything. It could be no, negotiating a midstream contract with a third-party midstream company, and they're calling us to get ideas on, hey, what have you seen out here? Have you seen something different anywhere else? What do you think of this? And so it's, it's just, a lot of times it's brainstorming and bouncing ideas off of each other thinking, let's just make sure we cover all the bases. And it's like I always say, like investing, it, whether it's investing or building a company, it's a team sport. They're not individual sports. There's no one person who can do this stuff all on their own. Right. What were they calling and asking you uh, during COVID when, when, oil was, <laughs> when oil was negative? What were those few weeks like? You know, for us, we were, well, it was one, what's going on? What do we think is going to happen? Anticipating what might happen. And that's where we were probably more proactive with our teams because yeah. on the micro, on the macro level, we saw what could be happening with volumes where demand really fell as much as we thought it would. And, and candidly, as much as it did, what, do, what are you going to do with the volumes? You can't just always shut in these wells. So the first thing we were doing is calling our company saying, hey, what are you doing? What's the plan? If we're not, are we shutting in? Are we choking back? How, how are we going to handle this? And it, that was an exercise for a lot of our teams because it was something none of us had ever seen before. Yep. I hadn't seen it before and I've been investing in this business for a long time where you had negative prices. No, nobody has. So we were dealing with that. We were dealing with, with PR. We, we had a drilling program. Do we keep drilling? Do we put the rigs down? You know, and understanding that the, you know, the daily nuance of the math behind doing that, we had a massive hedge book. I, I joke, we were, we were like a hedge fund a uh, mark to market basis we felt like a hedge fund there because we had all we had hedged into a drilling program so what when we decided to not drill we had this this wet, big in the money hedge position and what do we do with that do we unwind some or all of it and and pay down every dollar of debt and then just be it, we were well capitalized at the time yeah so and that's the one thing i would say in just backing up a step is what happened during COVID and what we did with all of our companies, it, it was, I, when I look at what happened before, during, after, for us, the, the critical thing was what we did before yeah. and the way we run our business. Because there wasn't but maybe one fire in our portfolio that, was, that we would have considered a, a big one. Right. There were just a lot of little ones that we were dealing with issues, but we had prepared our companies from a hedging perspective a debt perspective where we're just modestly to low leverage, low GNA, all the right things to where something like that happens. You're not, we're, other companies were, it's six weeks, it's eight weeks, it's 12 weeks before we're BK. We can't, we can't last here. Yep. That wasn't a topic of conversation. Yeah. It was, how do we maximize? If you're in that position and something like that happens, yeah. 
on the backside, you tend to be on a relative basis in a phenomenal position. And so right. it's how do we take advantage of that? Yep. And I think that's where, if you look at a, a Colgate story, is we were in incredible position going in, managed through, <laughs> managed through that hell, which it was for everybody. On the backside, we're in such great shape. And if you look at what happened in 2021 with the company, another inflection point. We got a bond, de- couple of them. We got bond deal done, and then a few big acquisitions. Yep. You know, over that year, over you know, seven hundred, seven hundred fifty million dollars in in acquisitions. So. If we weren't prepared beforehand, we would not have been positioned to take advantage of, of what was to come after. And when you're buying 750, is it y'all's job to raise the money or are no. you helping get the money from other people? It, like how do those it, come together? That's that's strategy. I yeah. mean, that's where every company's different. Yeah. So we had one one company in in our portfolio, Infinity Natural Resources, they're in the Marcellus and Utica. They lined up a big deal. They tied up a big deal this past summer. Well, it's our job working with them saying, how are we going to finance this? Yeah. They were closest to their banking group. They worked with their banking group as to what's the right size, what can we upsize to, so how much. And then we, we're we kind of the governor on the engine because a bank may lend you 200, but we'd look at it and say, oh, that's too much. We yeah. think it should be 120. Yep. And so that's where we would step in on, on that side with that deal on that part of the equation. And then the plug is equity. Yep. And so then it's our job to figure out, okay, how do we do this? What's the right way to do it? In that particular instance, with the Colgate deal, it was it was unique and it was multi pronged because we had just gotten a bond deal done. The company was regularly talking to investment banks. Could we do a tack on? What if we did a deal like this? I mean, they were they were ahead of they knew what they were looking at, so they were they were ahead of the curve. Yep. And remember, at that time, the big deal, the big cash deal, was the Oxy deal, roughly a little bit over five hundred million dollar deal. But we also did the Lux deal, which was 300-ish million dollars at the same time. And that was with stock. So that company had no debt on it. So it was an equitizing deal. It was kind of delevering. So the combination of the two, we looked at those deals. And this is us working with management. What's the right deal? How do we do it? How do we negotiate these? You know, it's a joint effort. It's, yeah. it's never just one group or the other. And what we all concluded is if we do this deal the right way, we can issue bonds and that we can sell some assets too on the backs, which we did at closing on the Oxy deal. We can we can basically debt finance the cash ports in, in the bond market. And with the mer- with the Lux merger being all equity, the Oxy piece being all debt with, you know, with a subsequent asset sell down generating some cash, we're good. We're good. And the balance sheet looks the way we all want it post deal. But that's if you said, what's our job in that? We're helping them. It's, it's on some things it's, we're more involved and other things we're less, less involved. And at the, at the high level, it's okay. Do we all agree that this is the right balance sheet after the deal, that these are the right things to do with the company and the assets? This is the right hedging program. And you basically come together and you, you come up with the plan and, and then go execute on it. And like, I know how it works in real estate, but from an oil and gas perspective, when you buy 500 million from Oxy or whatever transaction it is, is it usually because the buyer thinks they know they can either produce the oil for cheaper, there's a different strategy? Like, why would Oxy sell something down for for half a billion that was obviously so valuable? Yeah, well, I, well Oxy was looking to clean up, do some balance sheet cleanup post coming out of COVID, looking at where they're going to spend money drilling. And for whatever reason, they identified this pool of assets as being less strategic to them, even though they were in the Delaware Basin. Yeah. 
any investment banker at the time would have looked and said, okay, Oxy's going to sell these assets. This is why. Who are the likely buyers? And there weren't many people at the time who had access to cash. Yeah. So that limited the buyer universe. And when you looked at those assets on the map, they ran right up against the Colgate assets. Right. So what helps Colgate in that particular situation? One, the market dynamics were obviously critical. But a close second is they could look at you know, Oxy's reserves, engineering, what they're spending on drilling there, what their costs are, and they know what they can do because they literally had offsetting, offsetting acreage and wells. Yep. And so they had a competitive advantage from a knowledge base that, that they knew it makes sense and this is the price we could pay and this is how we'll get it done and we can execute on it. We kind of jumped forward, but why did you leave NGP? And, and what was, was there a new strategy for Pearl that was different than NGP? What, what was that all like? No. Uh, so NGP was great. Yeah. I mean, I, I, like you were there for 20 almost, years. almost 20 years. Amazing place, amazing people. Like there's, there's no regret of, of anything with NGP. I think it, we had just reached a point where when you look at our first eight funds, we were 30, $38 million. <laughs> upwards to to 1.3 billion. Wow. And and there were there're two components of that. There's the investing side and then there's the internal people management side. Yeah. Our fund 9 we jumped up to a 4.3 billion dollar fund. Dang. Yeah, so it was a big jump. We went from 1.3 to to 4 billion dollars and we could do that because our returns were phenomenal. You know that uh, that that kind of 10-12 year run was incredible from a return perspective. We did both Mesa deal and energy transfer in that window. Yeah. So, so we, we got to a point where you know, we were investing to the four, $4 billion fund we raised in 07, 08. Great time to be investing capital because we're right on the heels of the financial crisis coming into 08. We had all this dry powder in a $4 billion fund. And what hit me over really late 08, 09, 2010 was that's a lot of money. Yeah. And investing like we used to is just, it's, it always gets harder, but having this quantum of capital, yep. it just made it really difficult. And y- you layer that, that the investing side on top of the private equity business is somewhat scalable. You know, people always talk about, oh, it's great. You get these management fees, it's scalable. You don't have to hire people. No, that's not necessarily true. <laughs> to, a, to a certain extent, it is. Yeah. If you jump from a 700 to an $800 million fund, it's scalable. You may have to hire one person. You may not. You're not going to have to hire 10 or 15. If you go from 1.3 to 4, you're hiring more people. Yep. So our headcount went up tremendously. I don't even know what it was at the peak, but I want to say we were pushing 90 to 100. Okay. And in the early days, there were six of us, yep. six or seven. And I think the steady state pri- prior to the the $4 billion fundraise, we were in the 20 to 25 range. So you know, over a period of three or four years, it just kind of hit me as a managing partner of the firm, this, this is a lot. And yep. you know, we, we've had an incredible run. We've all done incredibly well financially. And then we all ask ourselves, okay, how happy are we day to day? Do I want to keep doing this? And for me, it was, no, I, you know, I want to go back to being smaller, smaller group, having fun every day, not having to do deals because you have so much money. I, I just wanted to get away from all that. And it was hard because the people were great. My yeah. partners, all the people at NGP were awesome. Our portfolio companies loved them all. Maybe not all, but, but, but most. <laughs> um, and, then, and then our LPs too. We had, a great, we had a great LP base. Although that was changing because when you go from, call it a billion and under fund to a multi-billion dollar fund, the LP bases tend to shake up 
when you make that type of jump. You go right. from less endowment foundation, 20, $50 million checks, and more to big state pensions, sovereign wealth funds who are cutting two, three, $400 million checks. But I had an obligation to all of them, you know, at least through our ninth fund, which is the $4 billion fund. And so when the topic came up of fund 10, and it's going to be another $4 billion fund, I just kind of sat there and said, hey, I, I'm not signing up for another 10 years. Yep. With what I'm doing, how this works, it, it, I, I'm just not. I'm just not wanting to do it personally. Okay. And so what I did is, unlike most people, up and leave at some point. I I didn't feel like I was in a position to do that given my role in the firm. So I went on a kind of two and a half, three year glide path down, saying, okay, I'm going to transition out as we have monetizations and Fund Nine matures and we sell off some companies, and I'm not in the docs as a full time investment professional in Fund. And fund 10. I just felt that that gave me the, you know, the, although I was an advisor, I was a senior advisor yeah. in the fund 10 docs that just gave me the, the nice transition, nice transition out. So Pearl is we can raise smaller amounts of capital, yeah. be more nimble, smaller yeah. team. Yeah. In fairness, I, in my mind, when I left NGP, I didn't know Pearl would exist. Candidly. I knew I liked investing. I knew how I liked investing. I knew the things that made me happy. And so so when I left NGP, I was just opening up a family office to invest my own money. And I was doing that with Chris Alds and Jim Wales, who were the co-founders of a very successful NGP9 portfolio company, Teak Midstream. Okay. And I've been friendly with those guys, do a lot with them. I mean, they're they're incredible, they're incredible individuals. And so they were looking to set up their own family offices, not knowing what they were going to do next, if anything, because they'd had a long, successful career in the midstream business. So we said, let's open up an office together and have it and just share ideas, share deal flow, just that type of thing. And at the time, to put it in perspective, in late 13, early 2014, when I formally exited, oil prices were 110, pushing, I think, as high as 130, 140. Uh, Yeah. It was the go-go days of shale. Raising money was was relatively speaking very easy. Lots of multi-billion-dollar funds. It was crazy competitive. And I looked at it being an investor. This you know, I've been in this business long enough, and I've seen cycles in other businesses as well. This feels way more like a sell than a buy opportunity. Yeah, I don't want to jump back in. Yep. Right. So I I wasn't going to go raise a fund to go buy in that market. And you know, as I I've said thousands of times and probably will say a thousand more is, you know, when you, when you're an investor, a lot of times you don't get to choose, you know, when you do things and how you do them, you look at the market and the market presents you with an opportunity. And as an investor, you know it, and then you have to take advantage of it. And so in the summer of 2014, oil fell from mid one hundreds to, you know, to 60, 70, and then proceeded to tick down by the end of 2014. And actually, I was ironically, I was uh, I was a Wharton undergrad, and they interviewed me on an it was an energy article in May of 2014, and I made a comment like, "Oil's at a hundred dollars. It's a bad time to invest. I'm a seller, not a buyer." <laughs> and oil falls, and then by the end of that year, I'm talking about starting up again, and so by the end of 2014, I was gearing up to launch what is now what is now Pearl, and. It was the market, right? It was the right timing, the the right time to to get out. It's you always want to be prepared, be prepared to have capital and deploy it when markets are softer, not yeah. stronger. Yeah. And so 
And so that's what led to, that's what led to Pearl and the timing of Pearl. And we always said day one starting it. And Chris Alds became, you know, he was a, a founding partner of the firm. And when LPs would say, what do you want to do? I, the answers were very simple. We have two things. And it's going to sound like a really lame mission statement, but we said, we want to make money <laughs> and have fun. And if people said, well, which one's number one? I said, well, it's making money. Because if you're not making money, you're not having much <laughs> fun. You're not having fun. So, so that's the number one. And that's why our, our partners invest with us. So we, we want to do that, but we want to have fun doing it. We want to have a, a good, relaxed atmosphere in the office where we take the work seriously, but not ourselves seriously. It's a smaller group. Like still today, we're 12, 13 people, no turnover. Everybody's been there together pretty much since day one. That's, we want to have that type of atmosphere. And that's what we've done and where we are today. And we're, we're happy with it. Yeah, it's funny. I asked somebody in real estate that's been in it a long time, like, what's your mission statement? And he was basically like, to refinance our properties like every five years, get cash back and can, can continue giving it back to investors. Everything else is just kind of talk. If you're not doing that, because you see some fancy mission statements out there these days. Yeah. And, there, and I mean, there are byproducts of all that that are yeah. rewarding. Like I, for us, for me anyway, who I've been doing it long enough, I it, it just... It makes you feel good when you have an investment that does incredibly well and you see all the people at that company. It changes their lives, yeah. right? Financially, it changes their kids' lives. It, you see that happen and it's, you know, it, it makes me as an investor feel good that, hey, I wasn't the reason this happened, but I was a big part of why it happened. Yeah. And same thing in our office when you have, you know, when you have, you know, wealth changing events and, you know, people sets people up to to do things differently, to give money to charity, to do all those types of things. That feels good. Now, if you're making money, you can do all those things. Yeah, <laughs> if you're not making <laughs> If you're not, you're not going to do them. <laughs> How has just energy investing changed since those $30 million funds in 94 to today? And there's been sentiment shifts along the way. Like, If you could just describe like how it's changed over 30 years and maybe where we're at today, What's been your observation? Yeah, uh, so it's uh, you know the proverbial saying: the more things keep changing, the more they stay the same. Yeah, that that is the oil and gas business. Okay, right? it's it's a volatile business. It's cyclical. And there are going to be good times and bad times. And good times, you need to prepare yourself for the bad times, so you're set up to take advantage of things in the good times. And we have, in some ways, gone full circle, right? And I, I can start on a, on a number of topics. The first is raising funds yep. at the, the energy private equity level. You go to the mid to late 90s. It was not easy. There weren't that many investors out there. You know, our, our first institutional fund at NGP was fund four, and it was a $150 million fund. And that at the time was a big fund. Yep. Now, a $150 million fund, again, that's, that's barely a fund yeah. um, like in the commitment. business. But, but it was, yeah, but it was hard. It was hard really hard raising that money yep. early on. Then it got to mid 2000s to you know, 2003, four, five through 2015. And if you had a pulse, you could raise money. Yep. And there were a lot of people who that's, <laughs> that's what they did. That's, that's what they did. <laughs> um, and of course that floods the business. It drives returns down. And then today it's very hard to raise money. And I think today, very hard to raise money while things are a different scale. It's different for some of the same reasons, but also for different. I mean, if you go back to the you know the mid mid to late '90s, the business hadn't been a great generator of of real good rates of return. Yep. 
which up until a couple of years ago, we probably, the oil and gas business had a, a good seven, eight, nine year period where the business didn't generate good rates of return. Right. Um, in fact, depending on the window you look at in there, it destroyed capital. Yep. And then you've had the, you know, the whole climate push, the anti-fossil fuel push, ESG, whatever you want to call it. It's all the same bucket to me. <laughs> you've got that layered on top of it. So it's made it, it's made it harder yep. to raise capital. And so in the investing side, again, with the, with the preface that it's always hard to make good investments, it's right. never easy, but certain times are easier to, it's easier to do deals at prices that look at least day one attractive. And that's how it was late nineties into, you know, through the, you know, the oil crash of 98, 99, you know, through to basically 2000, you could buy things on paper that actually made economic sense yeah. on, in the financial model. Yeah. But there was a window from 01, 02 through probably 2000 with little blips in between yeah. where a lot of times you run a financial model and things would trade. You couldn't run the math on the page and make, have it make sense. And so things got frothy in there and it got really hard to deploy capital intelligently. Yep. And now we're back to the, the business is disciplined, actually disciplined in a better way than it ever was in the 90s. Okay, why? Well, I think people are forced to not just generate rates of return on paper, but to do it cash on cash. So there was still a lot, even in the 90s, there were some dividend distribution models, but things were still, hey, let's drill a couple wells. That'll come on. It'll be, there'll be PDP wells, but it's going to prove up. 15 more locations, and we're going to be able to sell some of those as well. So while the exit would be cash on cash, it was still, is the business, is the field actually throwing off positive cash net to the owner, whoever it is. Yep. Whereas today, when you look at these companies, they're forced to say, I cash flow, I cash flow a dollar and I'm going to deploy 40 cents of that, 50 cents of that back in the field. And I'm either going to have s slow growth or reasonable growth, but that being somewhere between two, 3% or eight, 9%. Yep. And then I've got extra money to pay down debt and pay out distributions to equity holders. Yep. So that didn't happen in the night and that didn't happen very much in the nineties, but it's happening today. And that's, I, I think that's a good balance because it forces people to make tougher decisions on how they spend capital. And I think that's why you've seen, you know, real capital discipline in the oil and gas business. If you could pick like one price of oil, inflation adjusted for the rest of time, what's like the best price for oil? Like mid seventies. Yeah. So I like what I always say now is I, if, if oil prices are between 70 and 85, I'm happy. I'm ecstatic. In fact, I think I'd rather have, I'd rather have $80 oil than $95 oil Yeah. because it creates all sorts of other issues. And, you know, we, in our office, we walk around saying, well, if, if you can't make money at 65, 70, then you're in the wrong business. Yep. You should get out of this business. Yeah. So 65, 70, I feel is the floor as you start getting closer to 60. The rig count will fall, how you manage the business, it just becomes very different. So, and that's long-term sustainability. I think if we sit in the 70 to $85 window, it's a good, healthy business with real capital dis discipline. You won't get any frothiness, nor will you get the, the opposite effects of having dramatic plunges in prices. How do you think about the consolidation going on right now with Pioneer and then Crown Quest or Crown Rock? Yeah, I mean, the, this business, is, it's it's this business, like I said, the, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah, this business has gone through this wave before. Yeah. Different scale, different, in a different way. They're never exactly the same. But if you look at Oxy's deal with Crown Rock and 
people say, what are the positives or negatives to you, to you, Pearl, to your investment firm? I was like, I don't know. I think they're all positives. And they said, well, what do you mean by that? Does it, that's a rich price. I said, yeah, it's a, it's a rich price. So it makes PR look even better, right? It looks like the thing makes the things we own look even more attractive. So that values up. Well, it, what a, is there a negative? What about consolidation? Does that create a, No, it actually creates buying opportunities because as Oxy's come out and said, they're going to sell between four and a half and six billion dollars of assets. Well, here we go on the cycle again. You have consolidation and it's just natural, right? We see this in our companies. Yep. If they're a company, they grow from 25 to 150 and then they do a deal and they become a $300 million company. A lot of times that first $20 million asset is no longer relevant to them. It doesn't belong in their hands and they look to sell it off. Well, you're going to see a lot of them with all the consolidation on the backside of this, you will see divestitures. Now, it may take a couple of years to get there, but, and in some cases, depending on who's buying, you know, Oxy, for example, they're doing this on a lot of leverage. Yeah. So that'll probably come faster yep. than if an Exxon, when Exxon buys Pioneer, I absolutely think now it may take five years with Exxon, but because of this acquisition, you will see divestitures that they may not have considered three, four, five, six years from now. And so that leads to the next question. You think there's still a lot of room for private equity backed oil and gas companies for the foreseeable future. Yeah. 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 yeah within reason. I don't like this is partially selfish, but yeah. I don't want to see the go-go days come back where anybody can raise money. Yeah. Right. I think that's bad for the business. Yeah. So where we sit today on the private equity side, where if you've generated returns and you got the right team in place and you've been doing it the right way, you can go out and raise a fund. Now it may not be as big as it could have been had it be had had these been the go-go days. Yeah. But it keeps everybody balanced and it and it keeps the number of players out there confined. And I'm completely comfortable with with kind of living in this world. I think we can do we can do really well there. How does somebody know if they should be go private equity or not? Like like you see a lot of venture capital businesses that just shouldn't like the reason they're not good is because they took venture capital. Like, how do you know a team or a, a deal? should go the private equity route versus maybe passing the hat around or doing some other way of financing. So I th I think that kind of self-selects itself. I think if you need a quantum of capital yeah. that is say north of 50, 60, 70 million dollars. Yeah. It's kind of, it's yeah, it's kind of hard. Your first deal is a hundred million dollar deal, so you need 50 right off the bat. And then you want flexibility to do other things and bolt on. That's a hard pass the hat round. Yep really hard past the hat round. So private equity makes makes a lot of sense. But if your business is you buy $5 million fields and you fix them up and sell them for 10, I'd, somebody comes to us, yeah. candidly, it's too small. We're, yeah. we're not going to have an interest. But then my next question would be, why? Like, why do you want us? Yeah. You can do this on your own. What's your reason for coming to us? Yeah. And uh, what's like generally the model? What's generally the return that you would hope to hit in X amount of years to make a private equity deal work? Yeah, we we always say we want to be kind of three X in five years. Okay. If you were to say what's right down the middle of the fairway, we yep. want, you know, we want to triple our money in in five years. We're not in a rush. If you get a quick flip, something in two or three years, I view that as more luck. That's more the aberration. Yeah. We want to, to the companies we talked about, we want to build great companies over a longer period of time. And if you have that, you can compound that. You can yeah. compound that capital. And the the three X is a bit arbitrary, but you know, three X, twenty-five to thirty percent rate of return, that's that's something that's in the middle, you know, kind of in the middle of fairway of what of what we like to do. And and then getting back to just the capital coming back in the industry, is there 
you before we were recording, you kind of gave three buckets. Like, is there more capital starting to think about coming back in, or is it still kind of we're we're getting less and less folks interested? Yeah, and and we're talking to be clear, we're talking about the LP universe that invests in energy, private equity funds, yes. oil and oil and gas, fossil fuel, to be to be more specific. Yeah, going back to when we raised our third fund, which is a seven hundred twenty million dollar fund. We raised that. We launched it in the in September of 2021, and I I say this all the time, and it's the truth. I mean, we launched into into hurricane force winds. Um, it was peaking sentiment of anti fossil fuel ESG. Literally, it was like a week after we launched. Harvard comes out and says we're not investing anymore in fossil fuel, and of course that puts pressure on all the institutions who are located close by and. It was a hard period to invest. And what we saw over the last, call it year and a half, two years, is there, were, there weren't there were that many that actually had hard mandates. And it, we, I don't know the precise number, but call it somewhere between 20 and 30% actually had hard mandates. And a lot of them were unannounced. There were, some, there were some groups, we had some in our fund that didn't announce that they had a hard mandate, but they did. Policy internally, they were not investing in any more fossil fuels. Then you had a a big middle of call it fifty percent of the investable universe that was we don't know what we want to do you know we we have we're either over allocated plus the ESG plus this you know they they were kind of on pause so you had that middle ground where you didn't have the call it the thirty percent that were politically opposed to investing in fossil fuels then you had the middle ground they didn't know what they wanted to do and and all of them probably had some tensions on their you know their investment committee or board level as to what is our role in you know in the fossil fuel world and and how are we going to deploy capital here and then you had the smaller group you know 15 20% of the names maybe it's 25 but it's not that big where yeah. they 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 run their institutions their organizations like real money making you know thinking investment firms and they look and say wait a minute if 60, 70, 80% of the capital is pulling back. That's where we want to be. Right. That's, and do the that's fundamentals, yeah, that's bullshit. Now, now, do the fundamentals of the business make sense? Yes, they make sense. This is, this is where we want to deploy capital. Yep. So that was going back to, you know, two years ago, call it, and lasted, I would say, up until probably when Russia invaded Ukraine. I think if you had to say, pick the inflection point where people started saying, huh. What are we doing here? Is there something we're not thinking about? And started revisiting. Now it's early stages for a lot of these institutions and they don't move. (laughs) They're not like us. Like we can pivot quickly, making an investment decision. And that's what we do. We do that daily. They're not set up to do that. But I think when that happened, it forced conversations at the next board meeting as to, wait, are we not thinking about this right and security of energy supply and what it means if we don't have the right sources of energy and so when that dialogue started, I think over the course of what's been probably the past 18 months, you've gradually seen the hard mandate, 20 to 30 percent, they're not they're not coming back for a while, yeah. if ever. They'll continue to use fossil fuels. Yeah, they yes. just won't invest yeah. in them. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can get into that later, the whole hypocrisy of the <laughs> of the of the I'll call it the green movement, but it's uh, it, it kind of. It cracks me up more than it irks me because it creates investment opportunities. Yeah. But that middle group, I think we've seen over the last six months, a lot of them are starting to sway back saying, okay, 
I've had some realizations. We have more cash. The only thing that's returned capital in the last year and a half, two years, are our oil and gas funds. Our VC funds are horrible. Wait a minute. (laughs) Managing something, we're a fiduciary to manage this capital intelligently. And by not investing in a sector that underlies the economy around the world, is, is that a smart thing to do? Yeah. And I, so I think with those questions and underperforming, as I always say, and look, in the investment business, it's pretty simple. You can underperform your peers in the short term, but in the long term, only one thing's happened. You lose your job, Yep. right? That's If we underperform our peers, even if people are investing in, in the oil and gas business, they're going to reallocate their dollars from us to somewhere else, to somebody else who's generating a better rate of return. Well, I'm trying to figure out how to ask this question besides just be point blank. You're raising in an asset class that obviously, and and leave out kind of the politics of raising oil and gas money, but when you're raising $720 million, how do you actually raise it? Do you hire somebody to go raise it? Is there a psychology around it? Are you looking for an anchor first? Are you looking for a certain amount? Like when you set out to do it, did it end the way you thought it would from the beginning? Or what's your strategy around raising big amounts of money? So there are two, there are two parts to that. To, that, to the answer to that question. In your first fund, in our first fund, we raised, it was a $500 million fund. Okay. And most of that was raised candidly that I was a managing partner at NGP for the better part of 20 years. Our returns were great. A lot yeah. of the LPs knew me. A lot of the LPs were endowments and foundations. Yeah. And they were moving away from the multi-billion dollar NGP funds. So there was a, there was real pent up demand for the returns are best you generate the most alpha in middle market funds. Okay. And you do. Like the statistical studies on this are are widespread. All all the inv- the the investing universe knows that hey, if I if I have a choice between investing a dollar in a 500 million dollar fund or a 5 billion dollar fund, what am I going to do? Everything else being equal, you're going to invest in the 500 million dollar fund. Yep. So there was pent up demand. So we were fortunate that that was a really quick fundraise. Yep. The subsequent fundraise, our fund 2 was was really quick too. It was, it was eight weeks because we basically went back to our LPs and said, "You just want, we're going from 500 to 600. Do you want your pro rata re-up? And I think we had room for, we, they all took their pro rata and there was one LP who had been calling on us while be, in between fund one and two wanting to get in. We were able to accommodate like the one or two investors for a small amount. Yep. Fund three was a little different in that we kind of felt that, okay, this is a different world. We really haven't fundraised when you if if you look at say what what are things Pearl has done a terrible job at over the last you know eight nine years, it was our fundraising for Fund One was so easy that it made Fund Two really easy. So we were we and then we didn't go out until 2021. So it was six years before we had a real fundraise, wow. and the world changed. So and we we knew that we just didn't know how much it changed, <laughs> which was a rude awakening. Okay, uh, and so. And so we basically went and met with our existings and said, this is what we want to do. How much are you in for? We want to have a close in three months. And we had our biggest LPs all stepped up and they wanted in. So we had a, a pretty good, a really chunky, good size first close yep. that happened in inside of two, two and a half months. Okay. The next 12 was brutal. It was hard. It was reaching out to whoever would take a call. And, it, you know, some days it just, it was just frustrating because you get on a call with somebody and, and when the call starts with them looking at you thinking, 
you're a complete idiot for wanting to be in the oil and gas business. <laughs> that and how are you ever going to make a dollar here? And it's going away, and demand's going to zero. When when conversations start out with even if it's not those words, but it's that tone. Yeah, you you, you get out of that meeting, you go look in the mirror, and you're like, what am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> and so we grinded it out for another 12 months and we you know we were lucky to grab a couple of really good high quality long-term institutions that were in the the 20 percent i was talking about that yeah. looked at the opportunity looked at what we had done and said this is what we want which helped us get that to that level so and now the next time around i'd say what we're doing differently now is one we've been fortunate that our our returns have been you know top of the pack and a lot of that's becoming public. And yeah. so we're getting a lot of inbounds because people are saying, you know, with a little bit of shift to, of, hey, we're really thinking about getting back in this. And some of them are saying, no, we are. We, we're looking at 2024 and we want more exposure. Yeah. We're, the inbounds have picked up as a combination of what's going on in their portfolio and what's happened with, with, our, with our firm and our numbers and all that. And so that'll, that'll make our next fundraise, I think, substantially easier. But I will say, are we doing things differently? Yes. I mean, we we basically, after the last fundraise, said, well, wait a minute. We can't just assume that because our returns are best in class, that money's going to be there and invest. Yep. We have to go out. We always have to be you know, fundraising. We have to be setting things up you know, six, nine, 12 months in advance of doing that. You know, For example, some institutions may look at our numbers, you know, some of the big state funds that look at our numbers. We want to invest in this, but when are you raising right now? Well, our process is 12 months. Well, the, the answer is, well, we should have started with you 12 months ago, but that's not a very good answer when we're sitting there that day. Right. So, and we heard that some the last time around. So I think this time we're just being much more proactive and getting out and making sure we're in front of the, the right people ahead of time. So, so they're at least thinking about that. So why did you wait six years between fundraisers? Well, our first fund was 2015, okay. and that was a 10, 12 week fundraise. Okay. We started some. We started to call it July one, and we were done by September 30th. Our next fundraise was 2017, okay. so two years later, and we just at our annual meeting we looked at our LPs and said, "We've we're going to raise the next fund at 600. Do you want your pro rata piece?" And they basically all of them said, "Yes, I'm in." So that fundraise really wasn't a fundraise, right. right? It was all the same ones. And then there was a four-year lag, okay, four, 20, gotcha. 2017 to 2021 with deploying capital, COVID in the middle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we, we all lost a year there, Yeah, right? And so so we lost the year. So it would have been three without COVID maybe, but it, it was four. So yeah. it had been six, six years since we had actually gone out on a real formal fundraise. And when you raised 700, how many... How do you think about that? How much of that's going to existing companies that are already in the portfolio that are going to need more capital versus new versus new plus they're going to actually need more commitment than what we originally give them, if that yeah. makes sense? Yeah. So there, I, I would break that down into a couple of pieces. There's first, how, how much of that money will go into existing companies, that companies that we've already on with assets and other funds? <laughs> While I say the number is low because that's, it's generally low that we'll have a a a, a co-invest a follow-on investment. We had a big one and we did that. Yeah. Our, so so the biggest investment we have right now in fund three is actually a fund one portfolio company. Okay. So that did happen. But I would, you know, on a blank sheet of paper, I'd say, yeah, that's low probability. Yeah. The next step is 
how much of that capital will get invested, committed first, and then invested with management teams that are actually in your portfolio now, meaning they start a new company either towards the back end or they sell and start a new company. Uh, and our answer to that is generally 40 to 60%. You know, okay. and, and our portfolios are a little bit different than some of the bigger funds in that we, we like to be concentrated. So we think five, six, seven investments in a fund. And so if we look at funds one and two and we say, well, there are four teams that we're starting over with. Well, four of the seven teams we're going to back, yeah. we've already gotten the portfolio, yeah. which means, okay, so if that's the case and you do one deal into an existing team, that's five, you're going to do two new management teams yeah. in the life of the fund. Yeah. So that's generally how we think about how many new teams, then the next step is how many new teams that you start up with in the new fund. And I'd say that's two to three. So that's actually a smaller portion. It's a smaller portion. Yeah. Now, yeah. now Obviously, fund, fund one, one wasn't. <laughs> but now we did business in fund one with people that I'd been in business with before. Yeah. And, you know, and even the Colgate guys, they weren't people we just met on the street before we did business. I mean, there was a long history with, with a lot of the people we did business with before. So, but that's when you think through new management. And if you look at the, if you look at in fund three, we have two, three, three, three new management teams in fund three. That are brand new. Right, brand new management teams. But two of them they're the history and the connectivity of of who they are and where we know them from is very similar to you know what you would say about Will Hickey and James Walter that yeah. multiple they're multiple yes multiple people in our firm have known these people for 3 5 10 sometimes 15 years so, okay so let's just then let's ask this question you're clearly good at hiring people that have relationships in the industry. Like, how have you thought about that? Is it just dumb luck that you happen to have all these people hired that know all these people? Or what's your thought process as the leader of the firm? Uh, yeah, I don't... Like, how do you think about it from a relational perspective? No, so I'll... Because you ultimately have to be... If I have a deal in the business, I got to think Billy's a guy I want to call. Yes. And it's it's... I want them to think... I want to be in business. And I and I don't think just me. It's people I know. I want them to think me and Your Stuart yeah. and Kevin and Steven. And they have relationships. Yeah. And so I want people thinking, hey, when I'm when we get in business, what are we trying to build? Who do we want to do it with? When they say who do we want to do it with, I want them to I want them to call us. Yeah. And you know, we always said this at NGP and we say it at Pearl. And and I think you call virtually, maybe not all, but for most of our portfolio companies at Pearl and say, how are they as partners? You get nothing but but great feedback because that's what we want to be as a partner. We're we're not we're not anybody's boss. We don't try to we don't try to act that way. We just yeah. we all have the same objective. The same the objective is you know how do we take that dollar and turn it into three four five over a period of time because that that's what that's where everybody wins. Yep. All right, I got to pivot. Okay, because you sent me this. <laughs> well, there's a few things that you sent me that I thought were really cool, but you were like, I love MMA. Yeah. And it, the, obviously the rise of MMA, but you looks like Muay Thai. I can't even pronounce one of them. Koi Jiu-Jitsu. Oh, ju no, Jiu-Jitsu, yeah. Okay. How'd you get into this? So I've always loved the fight sports, right? Okay. And maybe it was back when I was a kid, I watched Rocky and, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. You know, right? And and so I've always loved, you know, the, the fight sports. Yeah. Uh, and it started with boxing for forever because MMA has only been, the UFC has been around with 30 years. And then it was about six years ago 
they'd had a few UFC fights at the American Airlines Center. And I went to a few of them. And then I was going to another one. I was at a bar right by. And I bumped into a friend of mine who's who's also acted and been an attorney for us at Pearl on a handful of things. And he was there and, and he said, well, what are you doing here? I said, I'd love to. He goes, well, if you love this, you ought to go train with me. There's this gym in Deep Ellum and it's 20, 25 UFC fighters. And I said, oh, that's great. He goes, come train. I train with the UFC fighter. Come with me next week. And I said, okay, I'm in. <laughs> you know, and I'd always stayed fit. I'm in good shape and yeah. uh, good cardio. And so I went and I trained with him for a day and I loved it. It was, I was hooked, right? I was hooked. So then it was like, okay, there's the striking aspect and then there's the ground game. I want to, I want to learn it all. And you just get, you get hooked. And, you know, as you get older, you try to figure out, okay, what can I get incredible conditioning from? Where can I challenge my mind on, but also generally speaking, not get hurt. And people think fight, you're going to get hurt fighting. It's like, no, if you, (laughs) if you play ice hockey, at my age, you're going to get hurt. Yeah. If you, I mean, there are certain things you do, you will, it's not if, it's when you get, you get hurt. If you play tackle football, you're crazy. Yeah. Um, that it's, believe it or not, it's not, it's not dangerous in a way of, of really injuring yourself because you're not really getting into a fight every day. You're, are you getting punched in the face? No, I, so I, I have to preface this. Generally, no, <laughs> generally, no. <laughs> There've been a few occasions where I've said, okay, we're going to spot, like I've been called in. So when I worked and I, I mentioned this to you, <laughs> uh, the guy I train with every day is Damon Jackson. He's a UFC fighter okay. and we become very close cause I'm with him every day. You train uh, every day. Yeah. Pretty much every day. Okay. Six days a week at least. <laughs> so he, during COVID, he, he got a fight in the UFC. He won and then got another fight and he said, I want you to come corner it with me. What's that mean? So I was in the UFC bubble. Oh, yeah. I was in the UFC bubble in December of 2020. Okay. Yeah, you know, because Dana White, he was, you know, he, he was the go. front writer. He's let it go. This COVID isn't, you know, and, and in hindsight, he's brilliant and right. Yep. We're not letting COVID stop this because yeah. we can't and we shouldn't. And so, so we, we were in the bubble. And I went and I out was, in the Middle and, East, right? No, no, I was out. They they had Fight Island in in Abu Dhabi, but they also set up the Apex, which is UFC headquarters in Las Vegas. So I was out in Vegas, okay. In a I forget the hotel, <laughs> but it was a, it was one of the it was a, it was like my son played youth hockey, and it was a it was like a youth hockey hotel. There a Holiday Inn Express or something where <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't the nicest hotel, but they basically said they put all the fighters up there who were fighting that week. You had yeah. to come in on a Monday. You had a COVID test that afternoon. Then you had a coat. You couldn't, you had to go straight to your room. You couldn't do anything till the next morning when they cleared you that, oh, you're negative. You don't have COVID. Then you could train there. And then you had a COVID test again. And then the fight was on, it was on that Saturday at the, at the apex in Las Vegas. So, but I got hooked. It's, you know, as I was saying, you, as you get older, you look for things that, what can you do that gets you in great shape, that keeps yeah. you healthy, keeps, that challenges you mentally. Yeah. And that does. If anybody's never done jujitsu, you get smothered, you get put in positions that are awkward, uncomfortable, sometimes painful. You're never going to get really hurt. And it's, it's as much of a mental challenge as it is, as it is physical. And, and then when I go into the office, I'm relaxed and I'm like, this is easy today. Yeah. It doesn't matter what I have to take on the office. I don't have somebody sitting on my head. So you, so how long do you train every day? Like 90 minutes? Yeah. Yeah. Plus or my early morning, obviously early. Yeah. Like I was in there, I was in there six, five fifty this morning. Yeah. 
are you, do you have a goal of becoming like a black belt? No. Are you a black belt? No. Do so, you care? No, I don't care. So how, I don't, I don't what, care. what actually do you care about I'm, I'm, as it relates to this? Like, it, how do you know you're continuing to improve and it's, it's something that stays stimulating? It's, it's constant learning. Okay. Constant correction. I will from time to time spar. So I, I'll do that from time to time. And the, what I left out is when I was going to corner Damon's fight in Vegas, he said, well, it's just going to be you, me, and one other there for most of the time. And then coach is coming out. He's coming out to Thursday. So you need to be able to spar with me and help me out. <laughs> it's like, so how am I going to learn how to spar with you? And he said, no, you're coming to team practice on for a couple Saturdays. So I had to go in and he, he told the other guys as we did rounds, you do five minute rounds, you're off one, then go back five minutes. And I, <laughs> this is a funny story. We, this, this happened, this has happened a couple of times where I've done stuff like this, where I go in and, and do it with the team. I did one, I think it was, we had our LP meeting on Tuesday and I did it on a Monday morning and I come into the office Monday afternoon and my assistant looks at me and says, what did you do? And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, you, you have a black eye. And I said, I don't have a black eye. She <laughs> goes, you have a big bruise right over here. And... <laughs> I was like, uh, 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 she goes, you have to be in front of your LPs tomorrow. You're going to have to explain away a black eye. I was like, uh, that actually probably helps your cause. Yeah. My, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, it's great. I mean, anybody who has any interest in doing it should, should try at least go try it. Okay. So if you were, I wrestled for three years as a kid, I always enjoyed it. And I'm not saying I'm trying to get back into it, but if I was going to get back into it, like, how would you even go about vetting the best way to do it i mean you're clearly with some elite fighters you but find, if, it's find a great gym and if yeah. you find a great gym you'll find you'll find a couple of great coaches who can, who can do that okay do you have to be flexible i can't even touch my toes uh, yeah well you want to be able to do that okay i can't i, can't. <laughs> I don't i don't think i'm very flexible but i can i can touch my toes okay. I, I, you got you got to stretch hey we're you get older you got to stretch out okay <laughs> all right billy Thank you for joining me today. Sure, sure. it was a pleasure. This was Thank a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Jason, as we sat back years ago and were envisioning where Fort was going to go, we realized we needed to bring in a global workforce, a remote workforce that could work with us. And a few of the reasons why were obviously cost, which I think is the first thing that comes to everybody's mind. But then when we talk about shifts, a 24-hour shift, and maybe you can go a little further there and some of the other benefits that we've realized as we've gone on. And now we sit here today in 2022. At the time we first had this was maybe 10 employees. Now we're at 46. Mm -hmm. And as you think about the next chapter and how we're scaling, it's almost inconceivable that we would do it without Relay Human Cloud. So can you just talk a little bit more to how the shifts work at Fort and the productivity and some of the other benefits that we've learned about working with a, a global workforce? It's actually been pretty transformational from how we think about how we're going to not only get stuff done today, but how we're going to get stuff done in the future as we grow. And so when you start going down that path of thinking about you're going to start working with people on the other side of the world, right? There's a lot of questions that come up. How are we going to do it? How are we going to train them? How are we going to, going to uh, manage them? Who's managing them? All those things come up. What we found with Relay Human Cloud was that all those thoughts had already been taken care of and that we could focus on what type of talent is there that can join our team? Does it fit our need? And once we saw that, that all that thought and energy had already been put into the operational part of 
managing and running a team and the thing that we focus on here locally, then it was just a matter of finding the talent. And what I think that Relo Human Cloud has done really well is find a lot of great talent. And, you know, uh, these are people that are highly educated, that uh, can provide a ton of value to a company like ours that otherwise we can't find here. And obviously it's at a, a high uh, or a extreme cost savings compared to what we could find here. So what we started looking for was how could we supplement what we currently do with the team overseas? And it started off for us from an accounting perspective. We, we have a lot of these things that are repetitive, task-driven, that just never end. And we know that, knew that our team was taking on a lot of work during the day, which was limiting our ability to take on new properties. And so we could either, we have a choice. We can hire another accountant or another staff accountant or promote somebody and bring that person on. But we're really just trying to solve, at first, a repetitive task. So when we reached out to Relay Human Cloud, we discovered that not only could we solve that problem, we could get a very qualified person that could not only do that, help support on a lot of other things. And so it, very quickly, it turned into we're trying to solve some repetitive tasks to uh, bringing on more and more team members that were actually helping us grow our accounting department without having to bring on a lot of people here. And so that that just continued to grow. So since then, we've brought on additional assistance, but it started with accounting. The benefit of having a team working globally is that you get the benefit of around the clock and it never ends. And so because we have a uh, team here working on things, obviously the time runs out during the day, but there's things that are going to, they're going to come into work tomorrow and they're going to have to start doing that again. One of those things, is, and a good example is cash reconciliations of every bank account. At Fort Capital, we have 50 bank accounts and there's cash reconciliations that have to happen every day. Well, that was something that locally a team had to come into work and start working on every day. Well, that just means there's other things they can't start working on. What happened uh, immediately with our team at uh, Relay Human Cloud was that overnight they were processing all those. They were doing all that accounting work on the back end so that when our team showed up in the morning, they could start on more important tasks that were happening happening locally directly related to the property. Mm. And that, that allowed us to uh, create efficiencies. And so that's just one benefit. You, we can go through a, a, an entire list of things that we have discovered that overnight can be done to help increase the efficiency of the accounting team. That, that extends beyond the accounting team. It also extends to the property management team processing invoices. So uh, Fort Capital, we have millions of square feet of industrial space uh, across the country. And with that, you have a lot of invoicing that's happening at all times. You, you could name a million things, whether it's paying bills, contractors, tenants, whatever it is, there's a, a million invoices being, and that can all be processed in India overnight so that when our team comes in, they're not spending their day processing invoices, which yep. allows us to get to more uh, proactive accounting measures so that we're using our accounting team to actually push the company forward, not uh, keep up with what's coming at us. Right. right. And so we found a ton of efficiencies um, by using or by having the 24 hour workday. So following that up, it was also important to us because that could have been done anywhere, but we wanted it happening under one roof with people that we knew that we worked with daily that were part of our team. And so as you think about these people that are halfway across the globe, it still doesn't seem like they're it seems like they're in the next room over. Right. And and that that's a good point. And I think the, the what what's important to understand there is that this 
group of individuals that are working in India are working directly for our team. They are a part of our team. They're in our systems. Um, they communicate with our team every day. They are not just an extension of our team. They are a part of our team. And so it is much, much different than if you go hire a third party service out there in the world that you're asking to process invoices, who you're having to send uh, critical or uh, important data to that is or might be sensitive, right? Um, information. We actually have all that internal and this team is a part of that internal team. And so it, it's a it's a much different way to look at outsourcing than if you're just outsourcing it even here locally in America. There's a risk there that you're sending your data to somewhere else. This is all happening internally. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. 